Hello all, warmest welcomes to yet another instalment of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, coming to you this week from a still very sunny, proper sweat your knackers off North Wales. How long can this last for us, eh? Will it be like last year or what? Let's hope it can be. It would go some to making up for the proper Game of Thrones winter that we've just had, wouldn't it? I'm of course Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast of the show's title. It's wonderful having you guys all here joining me as ever. I thank you very much for doing so. And I hope that as the episode drops, that you're all good and well. Many thanks for the very kind and positive feedback concerning the previous episode of this series, Suzanne's Story. Although it was a very sad case, the comments and posts that I've read since the episode dropped tells me that her story was a worthwhile one to have covered on the show, and I'm glad that Suzanne's is now not a long-forgotten name in the annals of UK true crime. I also pass on my sincere thanks to listener Tony Clayton for identifying the record sleeve that was mentioned in the tale based on the description that I gave in the episode. It was, as a matter of fact, Iron Maiden's 1980 single, Sanctuary. Now, I absolutely love when things like this are highlighted to me because I would never have known that. I did have a bit of a search for a likely sleeve during research for the episode, but no joy, so it's absolutely spot on that. Thanks very much, Tony. Cheers also to the returning and new show Patreon supporters this week. That's namely Amy C, CNH and Rachel Hale. Thanks very much, you wonderful folks. There will be another bonus episode out very soon for your ears. And if, like these guys, you fancy a bit of extra true crime enthusiast, then for a very reasonable amount each month, less than Homer Simpson spends on changes of clothes, you can get yourself a stack of bonus episodes as well as other goodies that are available. The link to the show Patreon page is with the episode show notes as usual, or can be found by seeking out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast on the Patreon site. If you find the picture of the creepy hand sliding down the window, boom, Robert's your mother's brother. So the episode this week is yet another case of me chopping and changing stuff around, which I shall explain the reason for shortly. It's due in part to me having yet another crazy busy week, as I usually seem to do, but this one is also fitted around me heading off on my travels to Manchester and down to London over the weekend. It's not something I would have missed out on at all though because I was very kindly invited to attend the They Walk Among Us Generation Y meetup on Sunday down in London. Because there were a few fellow hosts that I wanted to meet as well and I was available, I headed across to Manchester on Saturday and alongside Ben and Rosie I got to meet several other hosts over the weekend and be a proper fan. It was lovely to meet the likes of Jess Carter from Outlines, Sinead from Men's Rear, Caprice from the Unseen Podcast, Mike from Murder Mile, Aaron and Justin from Generation Y, plus a load of great other people. Each one of them was absolutely lovely, a proper great bunch, and we had a great time, though I did pay for it on Monday with a red wine hangover. The lesson there is never drink red wine with Jess Carter. It was a pleasure to be part of something like that though, and I wish Ben and Rosie all continuing successes with They Walk Among Us. What a great show it is. The companion book to the show is great also. I read it on the train down and back, and yep, it's absolute quality. So because the weekend had been devoted to socialising, I left myself a bit shorter time to finish researching and writing the planned episode I had. It is three quarters done, it just needs that final little bit signing off, and I couldn't rush these things, I wouldn't be happy putting out an episode that I thought I could have researched so much better, or miss out on some details or facts, it would send me back to bed for weeks that would, 
I feel like I've built the show on better than that. Well, it's a bit dramatic, that is, but you get what I mean, I'm sure. Luckily, though, a friend of the show stepped in to help. Some weeks ago now, a listener to the show, Julia Crane, got in touch about her researching and writing up a case for a show listener episode. Now, I'm always all for these, as you know, which is a good time to remind folks that if there's a case you think would make for a good show episode, one that you fancy jumping down the rabbit hole after yourself and writing up and researching, then get in touch by all means. So Julia did. She got in touch and she discussed with me a case to research and the one that she suggested was a case that I've always found to be fascinating and a very unique one. It also ties in very nicely with what I said in the premiere episode of this series that from this series going forwards, I'm going to occasionally feature on the show a bit more of a familiar case than I normally would. So this one not only ticks that box, but it's a listener-written episode too. Win-win. Love it. Now, Julia is an incredibly busy woman, but somehow find the time alongside this to deep dive into the case, research and write it up, and I was blown away by the research that she did for it. There will be another listener-written episode before this series of the show is out, because some of the other cases that I've had suggested so far for inclusion I've been proper stoked about. They're real obscure crimes, the likes of which I seek out here for the show. Plus, I love hosting these episodes. I've said many times I'm a big believer in paying stuff forward, and I'm always glad to give the same opportunity to someone as I had, which led to the enthusiast. But another listener episode is a bit away yet. We've got all sorts to go through coming up this series before then. And that all sorts begins with this week's episode. The tale this week, as I've said, is more of a familiar case than would usually be featured here on the show. But what a fascinating case it is indeed. It spans many years, involves many people, and had it not been stopped when it was, then who knows where it would have ended. I have to add also that the vast majority of the episode this week is Julia's complete own work and her own writing. I've added very, very little to the main narrative except a slight few bits to suit my own narrative style. The episode this week contains descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting so discretion is advised as always whilst listening, guys. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiasts this week. I'm pleased to have handed over the writing reins to Julia Crane as I host a case entitled The Bovingdon Poisoner. On November the 3rd, 2005, the British press carried reports about a 16-year-old girl from Shizuoka, a city in central Japan, who'd been arrested for poisoning her mother over a period of several months with a colourless, odourless and tasteless poison named thallium that until the 1970s was used commonly in the UK as a rat poison. The family court in which the girl appeared was told that she had, over a lengthy period of time, administered thallium to a 47-year-old mother in cups of tea or meals that she made for her, whilst keeping a coded yet detailed weblog of her mother's changing symptoms over time following this, including taking ghoulish photographs of her physical deterioration. The girl recorded these events in a dispassionate, unemotional manner, with no empathy whatsoever for what her mother was going through, filling the blog with such entries as 19th of August My mother has been sick since yesterday. She has a rash all over her body. Or the 12th of September, where she wrote, My mother has been complaining her legs are no good for two or three days. It is almost impossible for her to move. 
By October 2005, the mother had finally slipped into a coma, where the girl reported in her blog, Today, mother has deteriorated. She's been complaining of a worsening pain in her leg and has now become immobile. As her mother lay comatose, the girl wrote, I took a photo of her today, as I did yesterday. My brother said I had a penetrating stare and that he was horrified. So with her brother now suspicious about the root cause of their mother's illness, the girl herself, she's never been named, was taken to hospital on the 21st of October, having apparently self-poisoned in an attempt to divert suspicion, although nowhere serious enough to cause great harm to her. As soon as she was discharged from hospital, however, she was arrested after her brother went to police with fears that his sister was behind their mother's illness. Following the girl's arrest, police making a search for her bedroom found a mass of evidence to suggest that her brother was right to think this. There was a selection of animal parts that she dissected and preserved in formalin, including the head of a cat. There was the detailed weblog and photographs of her mother in various stages of illness due to poisoning and a large stash of thallium. She was believed to have obtained the thallium both online and locally, despite a ban on selling the poison to minors, by telling the pharmacist that she needed the substance for a school chemistry project. A weblog entry told, The man in the pharmacy wasn't aware he'd sold me such a powerful drug. The girl reportedly denied attempting to kill her mother, claiming that the thallium poisoning had been caused by her mother drinking it by mistake. Yet her weblog claimed, I got sympathy from my teacher when I tearfully talked about mother. I guess people are more gullible than I'd imagined. The judge in the case, Hiroyoku Anagwa, described that the girl had poisoned her mother purely because she longed to experiment with thallium whilst the senior official was quoted in the Japanese press as stating that the girl did not hold a grudge against her mother, but rather treated her as an experiment so she could observe the impact of the poison. Teachers at the girls' elite high school who were spoken to following her arrest described her as a serious, hard-working student with a bright future ahead of her as a chemist, but the weblog, which used codenames to refer to her mother and the poison, suggested that she'd taken this a step further and had started using her own mother as homework. She sounds delightful, doesn't she? I don't think she's on the counter at Boots now either, after reading her weblog. Now research wasn't able to uncover whether the Shizuoka girl's mother ever recovered from her daughter's actions, or any punishment that the girl faced, but there's a link between this poisoning and the case featured in the episode this week, because the Shizuoka girl was described as being fascinated with the subject of the case this week, to the point of obsession, and in a strange act of teen worship, it was almost as if she'd tried to emulate her hero's actions. An entry in the weblog read after the girl's arrest, dated the 3rd of July, read, Let me introduce a book, Graham Young's Diary on Killing with Poison, the autobiography of a man I respect. Quoted extensively through the weblog were passages from the book in question, a Japanese translation of Anthony Holden's 1974 book, The St. Albans Poisoner, The Life and Crimes of Graham Young, along with several references to a 1995 film concerning the case, The Young Poisoner's Handbook, a film which the girl was later said to have been mesmerised by. Now if Graham Young isn't a name that you're familiar with, then hang fire, hold your jets, because you soon will be. And if his is, 
then you'd think that Young is a bit of a strange choice for a teen idol. But it does take all sorts, doesn't it? And this is a strange world that we live in after all, eh? How else do you explain the popularity of Dross, like Love Island? And there are a number of similarities between the Shizuoka girl and Graham Frederick Young, who's also known by such names as the Bovingdon Poisoner, the Teacup Poisoner, or the St Albans Poisoner. Bit of a theme there, eh? Both were considered to be intelligent by their teachers, with both demonstrating a particular interest in chemistry and toxicology. Both experimented on animals. Both made themselves ill to deflect suspicion from themselves. And both kept detailed records of their actions whilst committing chilling and horrific crimes against other people, including members of their own family. Perhaps the most worrying aspect was how young they both were when they set off on this path, with both being teenagers when they started to commit their crimes. Much less is known about the Shizuoka girl than is known about the life and crimes of Graham Young, who by the age of just 14 had been convicted of attempted murder and detained in a psychiatric facility. His early release from Broadmoor Hospital also undoubtedly resulted in the deaths of at least two more people and caused many more to be hospitalised and be left with severe long-term health problems. So settle down, and if you've got a cup of tea, make sure that it's one that you've made yourself, as we get underway with today's episode, which begins with Graeme Young's birth in the Borough of Brent in the northwest of London. In 1947, London, along with many places in the UK, was still badly affected by the bombing from the Second World War, which had ended only two years previously. Scenes of destruction were still widespread, and times were still very hard for most people, with many items, including bread, clothing and petrol, still being rationed. It was within this context that Graham Frederick Young was born on the 7th of September 1947 in the maternity wing of North London's Neasden Hospital into a family unit that comprised of his parents, his mother Margaret, or Bessie as she was more commonly known, his father Fred, and his older sister Winifred, who was at the time eight years old. Young's father Fred was a machine setter at a clockmaking firm who worked hard to support his family. However, Things had been particularly difficult when Bessie was pregnant with Graham, as she developed pleurisy and had become seriously ill. Although she seemingly recovered from this illness, worse was to come for the family, as whilst baby Graham was born healthy, Bessie contracted tuberculosis following his birth, and sadly died just three months later. Fred was devastated by Bessie's death, and now found himself sole carer for eight-year-old Winifred and three-month-old Graham whilst also trying to work and earn a wage to provide for his children. It was an almost impossible situation, but he was lucky enough to have the support of his family, who all rallied around to help him. It was decided that the best course of action would be for baby Graham to go and live with his father's sister, his aunt Winifred and Uncle Jack, at 768 North Circular Road, and for Winifred to live with her grandmother in nearby Lynx Road. The young children were therefore separated and were to live apart from their father for the next two years, with him remaining in the young family home in Dorpool Road and taking the role of weekend visitor to his children. Now there are mixed accounts of how well Graham settled with his aunt and uncle, ranging from him being very happy and bonding well with them to being over clingy. 
However, after living with them for more than two years, his domestic arrangements changed once again in 1950, when his father Fred remarried. Following the wedding, Graham returned to live with his father and new stepmother, and they were also joined by his big sister Winifred. The family of four therefore comprised Dad Fred, stepmother Molly, sister Winifred, who was then aged about 11, and Graham, aged two and a half, who were all living together with the opportunity for them to have a fresh start as a family unit. By all accounts, Graham was a rather unusual little boy, who, although intelligent and an apt pupil, was quite introverted and socially awkward. As he grew older, he liked to read about macabre subjects and learn about murderers such as the infamous Dr. Crippen. He also around now started playing around and experimenting with substances that he found in the family home, including perfume and nail varnish remover, which he used to sniff. He became fascinated with chemistry, and given his strong academic ability, although only towards subjects that interested him, at the age of 11, Graham passed the 11 plus exam, which determined that he was suitable for a place at an academic grammar school, rather than a more practical technical college. Fred was evidently pleased about Graham passing his 11 plus and bought his son his first chemistry set as a reward. This, however, was going to prove to be a serious error in judgment. Graham started secondary school, John Kelly Comprehensive School, in 1959 and it soon became clear that he was a bit different to his fellow peers. Other pupils were afraid of Graham because of his creepy drawings of macabre subjects such as gravestones or people hanging over vats of acid, people on gallows, people with syringes sticking out of their arms, the kind of thing that Tony Hart would never have shown on the gallery. His obsession with poisons and toxins also marked Graham out, which led to other pupils calling him the Mad Professor, alongside his developed interest in the occult, and his ever-increasing admiration for Nazis such as Joseph Mengele and Adolf Hitler, who Jung hero-worshipped. Despite the fact that World War II had only ended 15 years previously, Graham wore a swastika badge to school, which was not welcomed by his teachers and the other pupils, and whenever the opportunity presented itself, he would hold court with lectures about why the Nazi regime was misunderstood, that kind of thing. He also carried a bottle of acid around with him until this burnt a hole in his school blazer, and he took fireworks apart to extract the gunpowder from them, resulting in a fire in his bedroom at one time, and damage caused to one of his neighbour's walls at another. Despite these strange behaviours, Graham had one or two friendships at school, including a boy called Christopher Williams, who lived near Graham and who shared his interest in science. The two 13-year-old boys would eat their sandwiches together and they would swap and share food during the school lunchtimes. Chris was to come to regret this friendship later though, because he started to become unwell with headaches and bouts of sickness and stomach cramps. Doctors were apparently baffled by his symptoms and suggested that they might be the result of migraines or a bug or even due to stress. What they didn't know was that Chris's friend Graham had moved on from the practice he'd developed of poisoning and sacrificing the local neighbourhood cats to, in his mind, the next logical step, and had been lacing Chris's sandwiches with poisons, including antimony potassium tartrate and thallium. This wasn't because he didn't like Chris, 
but because he was interested to see what effect the poison would have upon a person. Graham even pretended to show concern for Chris, whilst all the time knowing that he was the root cause of any illness he suffered. You'd skip having tea round at Graham's house, wouldn't you, really? It transpired later that the then 13-and-a-half-year-old Graham had been visiting a Neesden chemist and had been obtaining grams of restricted poisons, including antimony and thallium. Although the legal minimum age for buying restricted poisons was 17, Young could speak about the subject with such an air about experiments that he was intending to use the substances for that he could persuade the chemist, Geoffrey Reyes, to sell him the poisons who was convinced by Young's knowledge that he was of legal age. Alongside his two shillings a week pocket money, Young now began mopping the floor of a local cafe for a further five shillings a week, and it all went back to the chemist so Young could begin building up his own stock, each time signing the poisons register under the fictional name of M. E. Evans. He was never to be without a file of antimony on him, which Young would show to his contemporaries and would call my little friend. Chris, however, had a very lucky escape. He stayed home from school to recover, and as soon as he was away from Graham, he soon got better. It appeared that Graham didn't like this interruption to his poisoning experiments and was anxious to continue, and decided that he wanted to monitor the effects of the poisons more closely. To this end, he now turned his attentions to members of his own family, so that he could monitor the effects firsthand and uninterrupted. This was to result in serious consequences for his whole family, but in particular for his stepmother Molly. Molly and Fred Young had been married for just over 11 years when Molly, then aged 37, began to feel unwell during the later months of 1961. Her symptoms included severe stomach pain, vomiting, diarrhoea, weight loss, backache and hair loss. In a book that Graham's sister Winifred wrote in 1973 about the poisonings, she recalled that Molly appeared to waste away in front of the family's eyes. The family didn't know what was wrong with Molly at all, although there was some talk that her illness could be a knock-on effect related to when she'd bumped ahead after being involved in a bus crash during the summer of that year. No one would have dreamed that Graham who was by then not even 14 years old, was actually the one responsible. For several months he'd been adding antimony to Molly's food and drink and observing her developing symptoms with interest. Now, Antimony is a highly toxic substance that if it's ingested carries similar effects to that of arsenic poisoning. Today it's highly regulated and restricted requiring a license to purchase it. But back in 1962... Graham was able to do this pretty much without being challenged. There are mixed opinions about how Graham felt about Molly. Whilst Winifred Young wrote in her book that Graham had a close relationship with his stepmother, the recollections of his few school friends were that he didn't like her at all, so much so that he even made an effigy of her that he would stick pins into and use as part of his mock occult rituals. Molly was reportedly the stricter of the two parents, so this may have been one of the reasons that he was resentful towards her, but while some of her punishments did seem overly harsh, Graham's behaviour definitely seemed sinister and odd. There are stories of Molly smashing up Graham's collection of model aeroplanes as a punishment for some misdemeanour, 
or locking him out of the house on multiple occasions, but also of Graham drawing tombstones or coffins with Molly's name on them and leaving them out where she would deliberately find them. Very cheery sounding household all round really, that isn't it? Things came to a head on Saturday April the 20th 1962, which also happened to be Easter Saturday. Molly woke that morning with a stiff neck and severe pins and needles feelings in her hands and feet, but dragged herself out to the shops knowing that they would be shut for the next two days with it being the Easter weekend. Things were to get much worse for Molly though, as although she managed to make it back from the shops, she collapsed in the garden where her husband Fred found her writhing in agony after he'd returned from the pub. She was taken to hospital, but sadly died later that day. The pathologist who examined Molly's body reported that the cause of her death was due to a prolapsed spinal bone associated with the bus crash that she'd been involved in the previous year. There was no suggestion of her having been poisoned and certainly no connection was made to a 13-year-old stepson who had, as we said, for many months been spiking her food with antimony. In fact, Graham had been spiking Molly's food for so long that she'd managed to build up a tolerance to antimony, so the night before she died, on the night of Good Friday 1962, April the 19th, he'd upped the ante and had added 20 grains of thallium to her dinner, which is enough to kill a dozen people. So at this point, it seems a good point to pause and talk a bit more about thallium. Whilst it's an unusual poison for criminal use in the UK, Agatha Christie wrote about the use of thallium poisoning in a 1961 detective novel, The Pale Horse, and in Australia in the early 1950s, there were a number of murders and attempted murders using the substance. This included Sydney housewife Yvonne Gladys Fletcher, who in 1952 was convicted of the murder of her first husband from thallium poisoning, and another Sydney woman, Veronica Monty, who was found guilty of attempting to murder his son-in-law using thallium the same year. Just a year later, and also from Sydney, Beryl Haig tried to murder her husband using thallium, whilst Caroline Grills was sentenced to life imprisonment after murdering four people with thallium and administering the poison to two other people. Not a place that you wanted to piss your wife off in the 1950s by the sounds of things, Sydney, was it? Saddam Hussein also used thallium as a component in chemical weapon bombardments against his opponents, and that's one son of a gun that doesn't need any further words wasted on him, does he? Thallium salts are highly toxic and closely related to mercury and lead. They're also soft and they dissolve easy in liquid. Thallium's a poison that gradually accumulates in the body, so that repeated doses become more poisonous as the amount increases in the body. The symptoms, therefore, become more severe over time. It can, however, be relatively easily detected if poison is suspected through a simple urine test, and the effects do not deteriorate, so can be present in the body even after death. Thallium poison is, by all accounts, and like never having had it, of course, horrendous as you can imagine, with symptoms including severe pain, hair loss, sickness, constipation or diarrhoea, and also breathing problems and skin disorders depending on the dose that has been given. Nerve damage is common, and if the optic nerve is damaged, a sufferer's vision can be severely affected. 
So imagine then having a dose enough to kill a dozen people. I'll just leave you to ponder that for a bit. That's a grim thought indeed, isn't it? Given the severity of the symptoms caused by the poison, the likes that I've just described, it seems incredible that Molly managed to take herself to the shops on that Easter Saturday. But given that thallium poisoning is so unusual in the UK, it's not surprising that this was never considered as a possible cause for her death. It is possible that Fred had some suspicions about Graham's behaviour, with his interest in poisons and his strange experiments, but these were not serious worries. It sounds almost too fantastic to believe, doesn't it? And Molly's death was treated as a tragic, belated consequence of the bus crash. Molly Young was subsequently cremated at Golders Green Crematorium on the 26th of April, but after her funeral was held and the family and close friends got together for the wake back in the Young household, Graham's uncle John began to vomit after eating sandwiches containing mustard pickle. Coincidence? Or was Graham looking for another victim for his experiments? At the time of her death, Molly wasn't the only member of the Young family to be being targeted by Graham, however. In November 1961, Graham made his sister Winifred a cup of tea, but because it didn't taste right, she threw it away after only having had a mouthful. On her commute to work later, however, she started to feel really unwell. So poorly did she take that she had to be helped off the train and was taken to a nearby hospital. It later transpired that Winifred had been poisoned with Atropa belladonna or deadly nightshade, a highly toxic plant that causes hallucinations and which can kill an adult if they consume just 10 to 20 berries from the plant. At this time, Fred confronted Graham, wondering whether he'd used some of the family's crockery for his chemistry experiments that had somehow resulted in Winifred's illness, but Graham denied this and said it was more likely to be due to Winifred using the family's cups to mix up her shampoo and cosmetics. Fred had no evidence that his son was involved in Winifred's illness and therefore had to take him at his word. Fred and Winifred continued to experience diarrhoea and vomiting, and even Graham had shown similar symptoms, but after Molly's death, Fred in particular took a turn for the worse and he was admitted to hospital, fearing that he was also about to die. Graham visited his father in hospital, taking an interest in his symptoms and listening carefully to the doctor's discussions as to whether Fred's illness could be caused by antimony poisoning, and this diagnosis was later formally confirmed. Fred slowly began to realise that his bouts of illness tended to occur on a Monday, always the day after Graham would join his dad at the local pub. Fred asked Winifred not to bring Graham into hospital anymore, and this must have been horrific for Fred. How could you start to believe that your own son, who was intelligent and from photographs of the time appeared very smartly presented, was also trying to poison you and his sister? and had also possibly killed the stepmother who had cared for him over 11 years. This must have seemed unthinkable to Fred, however, he was soon going to have to confront these worries, as he was not the only one who had suspicions about Graham and his strange behaviours. Whilst Fred lay in his hospital bed, Geoffrey Hughes, who was Graham's school science master, was becoming concerned about Graham and some of the things that he was getting up to. 
Long before safeguarding procedures were formalised in schools, Mr Hughes spoke to the school's head teacher about Graham and then searched Graham's classroom desk. What he found there disturbed him to such an extent that he contacted the police. All stored amongst his school books and stationery, Graham had been writing essays about famous poisoners and infamous murderers of the past. He'd also produced drawings of people dying in various horrific ways and had been collecting bottles of poison. The police took Mr Hughes's concerns seriously. A police psychiatrist was sent to the school to meet with Graham. However, Graham thought that he was going for a careers interview. The psychiatrist, posing as a careers advisor, encouraged Graham to talk about his interests, which naturally led on to a discussion about chemicals and toxins. Graham couldn't help himself, and he went into great detail about his knowledge of poisons and their effects, which worried the psychiatrist deeply. The psychiatrist then reported his findings, and Graham was arrested on the 21st of May 1962 at his aunt's house in Lynx Road. He was found to have a vial of antimony and two bottles containing thallium on him when he was arrested. Whilst Graham initially denied trying to poison his nearest and dearest, he later confessed to the police about the activities he'd been up to and took police to various hiding places where he'd concealed poisons around the neighbourhood. On the 22nd of May 1962, Graham was subsequently charged with the attempted murders of his father, his sister Winifred and his friend Chris Williams. He couldn't be charged with Molly's murder because she'd been cremated and at that time there was no way of ascertaining whether her ashes contained a poisonous substance despite Graham admitting that he'd been adding antimony to her food and drink over a period of months. Following Graham's arrest, whilst on remand he was assessed by two psychologists who diagnosed him as having both a personality disorder and signs of schizophrenia, a verdict which included a description of Graham as having a lack of moral sense. On the 6th of July 1962, the 14-year-old appeared at the Old Bailey in front of Mr Justice Melford Stevenson, where he spoke only once to plead guilty to the charges against him. He was duly convicted of poisoning his father, his sister and Christopher Williams. Due to his mental health diagnosis, Graham was detained under Section 66 of the 1959 Mental Health Act and so was sent to Broadmoor Maximum Security Hospital in Berkshire rather than to a prison. Now Broadmoor is somewhere we've mentioned previously several times on the show. It's one of only three high security psychiatric hospitals in England and has housed some of the UK's most notorious and disturbed individuals in its time, including Ronnie Cray, Yorkshire Ripper Peter Sutcliffe, and a couple that we've met in past series of the show, Rampaging Killer Kevin Weaver and the Hull Arsonist Bruce Lee. When the 14-year-old Graham was sent there in July 1962, he was Broadmoor's youngest inmate since 1885, with his detention at the hospital subject to an order that he should not be released for 15 years and that if his release was ever to be considered before this time then it would require the direct permission of the Home Secretary. Little is known about Graham's full time in Broadmoor however. He was visited periodically by his forgiving family although his father was unable to be so forgiving due to his suspicions that Graham had caused Molly's death 
despite the official cause that had been given at post-mortem and also due to the lasting liver damage that Graham's poisoning had caused him and he duly ceased going to visit him. Graham largely kept to himself in Broadmoor as was his pattern throughout life. He didn't mix or make friends easily, although over the years he was reported to have made one or two close friends. Graham's interest in Hitler and Nazism also continued at Broadmoor, and he made wooden swastikas to wear around his neck, even at one point growing a Hitler moustache. He also used the time to read scientific books in the library, and where possible, to increase his knowledge of poisons and toxicology. It is possible whilst he was there that he was up to his old tricks as well, as there was a reported instance of corrosive sugar soap being added to a tea urn, a coffee cup was found to contain toilet bowl clean harpic, and a fellow patient called John Berridge died of cyanide poisoning. Graham's sister Winifred was convinced that Graham had been responsible for John Berridge's death because in his letters home, he had complained frequently about Berridge and how his loud snoring on the hospital ward disturbed everyone. Nobody could understand how Berridge might have accessed cyanide from inside the hospital, as it wasn't kept on the grounds either in pure form or any form that it could be easily extracted from, until Graham informed them that the substance can be extracted by an expert poisoner from laurel leaves, which grew in the farmland adjacent to the hospital grounds. There was, however, no proof that Graham had murdered Berridge, and so the official cause of his death was recorded as suicide. What do you guys reckon? By the time he'd spent five years at Broadmoor, Graham's behaviour had changed and he was described as having developed into a model patient. Because of this, he was allowed a bit more freedom, and whilst those around him were pleased with his progress, Graham was working on a plan to get away from Broadmoor and to return to the outside world. Whilst there were times that his mask slipped, for example, he once told a psychiatric nurse that he wanted to kill one person for every year that he'd been at Broadmoor, in June 1970, the hospital psychiatrist Edgar L. Udwin wrote to the Home Secretary recommending Graham's discharge from the hospital. Udwin told the Home Secretary in a letter that Graham was no longer a danger and that he has made an extremely full recovery and is now entirely fit for discharge, and that after eight years in Broadmoor, Graham was no longer obsessed with poisons, violence and mischief and he is no longer a danger to others. Following this recommendation, Young was allowed a successful week at liberty in November 1970, when he was taken in by his sister and her family. Whilst Winifred had previously been poisoned by Graham, she trusted the doctors who said that Graham was cured, and she welcomed him into the home that she shared with her husband and child in Hemel Hempstead in Hertfordshire. This was despite the fact that in one of his letters to Winifred, Graham wrote, Your friendly neighbourhood Frankenstein will soon be at liberty. The week was such a success and Graham behaved so impeccably that he was allowed back there for Christmas of that year also. The office of the Home Secretary ultimately took the advice of Dr. Udwin and Graham, by then aged 23, was ordered for release on the condition that he should reside at a stated address be supervised by a probation officer and attend a psychiatric outpatient clinic. In terms of his capacity to work, Edgar Udwin had stated that Graham was 
capable of undertaking any sort of work without restrictions as to residence, travel or environment. This was to prove a serious error of judgment, as we shall see. By all accounts, Graham was delighted to be being discharged from Broadmoor. I mean, who wouldn't be really, would they? And he wrote to his sister, Winifred, to tell her the good news. Graham's father, Fred, was less enamoured with the decision to release him. As we've said, he hadn't forgiven Graham for, in his mind, leaving him a widower for the second time, for the permanent liver damage that he'd suffered, and for his actions that had threatened both the lives of Fred and Winifred. I mean, it's understandable, really, that is quite a lot to forgive, isn't it? Graham was released on the 4th of February 1971, and after leaving Broadmoor, he headed off to Hemel Hempstead, which is known as Hemel in the local area where his sister lived. These days, Hemel is a large town just outside the M25, and as it's on a direct train route to London that takes only half an hour, many of the people who live there are commuters. Couple of stats I found out about it. It claims to have Britain's first purpose-built freestanding multi-storey car park, and the slimiest Bond, I thought, Roger Moore himself, lived there back in the 1960s, obviously before he worked in the laundrette with my old colleague Bill, that you may remember me discussing in a past episode. Back in 1971, Hemel was a new town that had been developed to help with the housing crisis of London after the Second World War. A large number of concrete buildings and new houses were put up, surrounding the historic centre of Hemel, and families who'd been bombed out of their homes were housed there, as well as people who were moved from their homes as part of the slum clearance programme. When Graham arrived in Hemel, he lost no time that weekend in visiting his all his old familiar haunts, and he also travelled into London to see the old family home in Neasden, where he called upon the neighbours who'd known him as a teenager and also his old school headmaster. Then, after a few days of staying with Winifred and her family, Graham moved into a hostel in Bath Road in Sippenham, near Slough, where he was about to begin a three-month course in storekeeping at a government training centre. Graham started his course on the 8th of February 1971, and as the weeks went by, other men at the centre who were on the course with him started to become ill with sickness and stomach pains, with an estimated up to 30 people affected at this time. One man who'd become particular friends with Graham, Trevor Sparks, like many of his other colleagues, developed stomach cramps, nausea and diarrhoea, as well as pain in his scrotum and a swelling in his face. Trevor was at the time a keen and fit football player, but he began to use the use of his legs with no cause that could be found for these symptoms. Although when he moved away from the centre, and particularly Graham, he started to get better. He never fully recovered though, and for years afterwards he would complain of being in constant pain. Another man who was an acquaintance of Graham even took his own life because of the constant pain he was experiencing. Neither of these events could be officially linked to Graham at that time, however, even though it was later found out he was buying poisons at this time and that he was making trips into London on his free weekends to do so. Graham could evidently play the part of a mature and responsible young man to the extent that the chemists felt confident enough to sell him these substances as he pretended that he needed to buy the chemicals for his work as a research student. Having passed his government training course, Graham now sought permanent employment, 
and in April 1971 he applied for a job as a junior storeman at John Hadland Laboratories in the village of Bovindon in Hertfordshire. This was ideal for Graham, as Bovindon is only about four miles from Hemel Hempstead where Winifred lived, and Graham himself managed to rent a room in Maynard Road in the centre of Hemel Hempstead, where he could be near to both his sister and his new workplace. Bovindon is now a busy, attractive village, and being close to London, it's attracted some celebrity residents, including actress Frances de la Tour, who is the object of Rigsby's desire, Miss Jones, in television situation comedy Rising Damp, former Arsenal and England goalkeeper David Seaman lives there, and the musician turned actor Goldie. Bovenden had also had an RAF base during the Second World War, although the airfield is today no longer used, and it's sometimes been used as a location for filming, due to its close proximity to Pinewood Studios. In fact, the famous flying car scene from the James Bond film The Man with the Golden Gun was filmed there. Although it's no longer there, Hadlands, as the firm was known locally, was a family-run photographic specialist equipment manufacturer in Bovingdon that produced high-speed cameras and lenses. Graham's job application was considered by Mr Godfrey Foster, the managing director of Hadlands, who was impressed by his potential candidate but concerned that there was a significant gap on his CV. He was somewhat reassured when he was told by Graham that he'd been hospitalised due to suffering from a nervous breakdown after his mother died in a car accident. But in order to be on the safe side, however, Godfrey Foster sought references for Graham and received a copy of a report written by Edgar Udwin, the psychiatrist, which stated that whilst Graham had suffered from a personality disorder during his adolescence, he had made a full recovery. No mention was made of Graham's nefarious past or the poisoning of his family and friends, which would have been helpful really given that highly toxic chemicals and poisons were stored on the company premises and were used in their manufacturing processes. An official review of the case that took place after Graham Young's conviction recorded that Graham's probation officer never visited Hadlands or Graham's home and therefore Graham was free to do as he pleased without being monitored by the relevant authorities. So after finding lodgings for himself, an upstairs room at 29 Maynards Road in Hemel Hempstead, Hadland's newest member of staff reported for work on the morning of the 10th of May 1971. Anthony Odoms, who was an employee of Hadland's between 1969 and 1984, recalled Graham as being an unexceptional, somewhat dark and glum individual who described himself as being a failed chemist. Unbeknown to his colleagues, however, Graham had dusted off the fake ID under the name of Emmy Evans that he had previously used as a teenager and had again been visiting a chemist near Selfridges in London to stockpile a range of poisons, including antimony and thallium. Graham started getting to know his new colleagues at Hadlands, and this included 41-year-old Ronald Hewitt, who'd stayed on at the firm to help train up Graham and get him settled into his new role. As an apprentice, like many junior members of staff before him, as the new boy, he would be tasked as a bit of a dog's body with many menial and fetch-and-carry roles, and one of his duties included making the tea for his more senior colleagues. Yeah. Can you see how this is going to go? Within a couple of weeks, Ronald had started to feel unwell, having stomach pains, nausea and vomiting and diarrhoea that he put down to a bug. 
The symptoms kept returning, however, and he only fully recovered after he'd permanently left the company. The next person at Hadlands to fall ill was 59-year-old Bob Eggle, a veteran of World War II who worked as a foreman in the storeroom with Graham. He experienced the symptoms that we're now familiar with, was off work several times over a short period, but then appeared to recover well in mid-June during a short holiday to Great Yarmouth. After returning to work, Bob again almost immediately suffered from severe health issues, including numbness and severe pain that resulted in virtual paralysis and rendered him unable to speak. Bob was taken to hospital in Hemel Hempstead, where the doctors were unsure of what was exactly wrong with him and his condition deteriorating by the day, until after eight days of increasing agonising pain, he died on the 7th of July 1971. His official cause of death was bronchial pneumonia arising from a rare nerval condition called Guillain-Barr syndrome. Bob's colleagues were much saddened by his death for he'd been well liked at Hadlands and Godfrey Foster selected Graham to accompany him to Bob's cremation because of the concern he'd constantly shown for Bob's well-being and prognosis and how sensitively he expressed his distress that Bob had died so tragically after previously having survived the Battle of Dunkirk. But Bob was not to be the only victim of illness, shall we say, who was working at Hadlands, and many other members of staff started to become unwell also, including employees Diana Smart, Jethro Batt, David Tilson, Peter Books, and the 60-year-old part-time work-in-progress supervisor, Fred Biggs. All were to suffer the now familiar symptoms on and off over a period of months, and all were seriously ill. By an unfortunate coincidence, children in Bovindon Village had also at the time started suffering from a sickness bug like the norovirus, which was doing the rounds. It soon became clear that what was going on at Hadlands, though, was much more serious than the bug that was going around the school, and it wasn't long before the next fatality at Hadlands, this being 60-year-old Fred Biggs. Like the aforementioned, Fred had been periodically unwell over the intervening months, but by the beginning of November 1971, he was taken to Hemel Hempstead Hospital when his skin started to peel off, he couldn't walk, and he couldn't even tolerate the weight of a single bedsheet on his skin, such was the pain. Admitted to the West Hearts Hospital in Hemel Hempstead, it was agreed that he needed more specialist help, and he was then transferred to the National Hospital for Nervous Diseases in London's Queen Square. Despite this support, his condition worsened, and he died in agony on November the 19th, 1971. There was much head-scratching and discussion amongst the doctors, who couldn't fathom out why Fred, like his colleague Bob before him, had become so severely unwell so quickly. A second death caused panic at Hadlands, and officials from the health board were brought in to examine the plant and the conditions there, but after scrutiny, passed it with a clean bill of health. They were none the wiser from speaking to the employees individually either, and people began talking of curses and evil spirits, and still the mysterious illnesses continued. What they were of course not aware of was that Graham Young was not only administering poison to his colleagues in the cups of tea that he would fetch, but he was then diligently recording what happened to them in his diary. Of Fred Biggs he recorded before he died, F is now seriously ill, 
he has developed paralysis and blindness. Even if the blindness is reversed, organic brain disease would render him a husk, and it seems a shame to condemn such a likeable man to such a horrible end. At another point in his diary though, Graham described his annoyance that Fred was showing some response to treatment and described Fred as being obstinately difficult because he didn't die as quickly as Graham had expected. Yet there seemed little malice really, each entry was written more clinically as though from the perspective of a scientist rather than a burgeoning serial killer. Another member of staff, receptionist Diana Smart, also became unwell and complained of the usual symptoms, but also included a deteriorating sex life and smelly feet. She spoke to her boss, saying that she suspected Graham of being a germ carrier because he never seemed to be ill, and reporting that he was creepy and that she wished to leave. However, the MD was desperate for her to stay at the firm and offered her a pay rise, which she accepted to stay, but which nearly cost Diana her life. Talking to the Daily Mirror newspaper in 2012, Diana recalled that whilst working at Hadlands, her hair and teeth started to fall out and that she was constantly in immense pain. Her concentration also suffered and she became very confused, describing how she went from being a fit 32-year-old mother to someone with several long-term chronic health conditions because of her immune system and internal linings that were damaged by the poison. Even in 2012, at the age of 73, Diana stated that she had chest and stomach pains every day because of what Graham had done to her. All the time that Diana was feeling unwell, Graham was poisoning her and recording his actions in his diary. One entry stated, Di irritated me yesterday, so I packed her off home with a dose of illness. I only gave her something to shake her up. I now regret I didn't give her a larger dose capable of laying her up for a few days. The illnesses at Hadlands persisted and still nobody had any idea about what was happening. Jethro Batt, who worked in the storeroom with Graham, was hospitalised after suffering from hallucinations and hair loss. This was so great that Jethro was described as looking like a three-quarters plucked chicken by the time he left hospital. Such was the pain that he'd been in that he'd even considered suicide. Another colleague who succumbed to Graham's evil ways was Bovington's answer to Ken Barlow, David Tilson, who later related in court that he was going around with several girls at the time and became useless in bed because of his illness. Graham's diary later revealed to the police that he'd planned to finish David Tilson off in his hospital bed by offering him a swig of brandy laced with poison. I don't even think Thallium would have stopped Ken Barlow, to be honest. Unsurprisingly, things reached a crisis point at Hadlands, and speculation was rife as to what was causing members of staff to drop like flies. The factory premises were inspected again, but nothing untoward was discovered, and a staff meeting was arranged that also involved a general practitioner called Dr Ian Anderson. The reason for this meeting was to discuss possible reasons for the outbreak and to hopefully reassure the concerned members of staff. Three possible theories for the illnesses were proposed by Dr Anderson. Firstly, that there was a contaminated water supply. Secondly, that the illness was the result of radioactivity from experiments in the nearby former Bovingdon airfield. And finally, that a viral infection that they were calling the Bovingdon bug was to blame. 
Graham, who had attended the meeting, had another suggestion though that he raised, and he questioned the doctor as to why thallium poisoning had not been raised as a possibility. Proceeding to hold court as he'd done so often in the past with his vast knowledge of the symptoms and effects of thallium poisoning. Now, this question raised the suspicions of both the doctor and other members of staff at Hadlands, who were aware of Young's interest in chemistry, and they then informed the police. The police launched an investigation which rapidly uncovered the truth that Graham was a convicted poisoner and he'd been released from Broadmoor less than a year previously. With enough evidence to take Graham into custody, the police arrested him on Saturday the 21st of November 1971, catching up with him whilst he was staying with his Aunt Winnie and his father Fred in Sheerness in Kent. They knocked on the door at 11.30pm and led him out of the house, and the scene can only be imagined really, with Auntie Winnie calling out to Graham to ask what he'd done, and his father Fred watching in stony silence. Whilst his son was taken back to Hemel Hempstead in a police car, Fred collected together all the documents that he owned that related to his son, including his birth certificate, and destroyed them, effectively disowning him. After searching his rented room in Hemel Hempstead, police uncovered a cache of incriminating objects, including bottles of thallium, antimony and asonotine, his ghoulish pictures of Hitler and drawings of coffins and emaciated figures holding bottles with poison written on them. But most damningly, Graham's diary was found in which he'd carefully recorded every dose of poison that he had administered and to whom, although referring to them by initial only. The handwritten diary was entitled A Student's and Officer's Casebook and in it was recorded a decision for each person as to whether he would allow them to live or die. It also reported his worries about being detected and revealed that he had plans to commit suicide if he was ever found out. At Hemel Hempstead Police Station, continuing their murder investigation under Detective Chief Superintendent Ron Harvey, Graham was searched and found to have a file of thallium in his pocket, which he described as his exit dose. The book The St Albans Poisoner gives a remarkable account of Young's questioning after his arrest, and whilst his obvious intelligence and confidence shines through, you're left with a sense of how much of a game that he enjoyed playing with police. I mean, he really relished it. Like he wouldn't at first admit to what he'd exactly administered to people like Jethro Bat, who was at that time still seriously ill in hospital, but he would volunteer the antidote that doctors needed to give him to combat the symptoms. He was to admit to police what he'd done somewhat proudly, but whilst he verbally confessed to poisoning nine people, including once again his stepmother Molly, he refused to sign a written statement to that effect. Regardless, on the 23rd of November 1971, Graham Young was charged with the murder of Frederick Biggs at Hemel Hempstead Magistrates Court. As police hunted for evidence to back up the seemingly motiveless crimes, part of the investigation involved the exhumation of Fred Biggs' body, which was then tested for poison. 120 micrograms of thallium was found in Fred's intestine, providing evidence that Graham had been responsible for his death. However, Graham disputed this and said that he'd given Fred some grains of thallium to help him manage some pests in the garden. The other person Young was suspected of murdering, Bob Eggle, had been cremated and therefore his reins could not be exhumed. However, 
Detective Brendan Hayden travelled to Loddon in Norfolk and recovered the casket that contained Bob's ashes, which were then examined. For the first time in British legal history, evidence from an individual's cremated ashes was used to try and build a case, and when the contents of the urn were examined, out of the 1,780 grams of ash, they were found to contain 9 milligrams of thallium. Now this would have been equivalent to about 5 micrograms per gram before cremation had burnt off most of the remaining traces of thallium. You can only imagine the suffering that the poor guy went through, can't you? Following this discovery, charges were also brought against Young for causing grievous bodily harm by the administration of poison, namely antimony, to Diana Smart, Ronald Hewitt, Peter Buck and Trevor Sparks and were added to the list of the counts of murder that he was already facing. Whilst he was awaiting trial, during their investigations, police tracked down the pharmacist in London who'd sold thallium to Graham, and whilst in London, Detective Hayden also visited Neesden Library, which had been Graham's local library when he was a teenager. Staff recalled the young lad who spent a lot of time at the library reading books about poisons, but they also recalled how they became ill, after he offered to pop out to the local shops for them as an errand to buy them some rolls for lunch. Where would this have ended, eh? Graham's trial, which was a high-profile affair, began at St Albans Crown Court on the 19th of July 1972, where he was charged with murdering Fred Biggs and Bob Eggle, with an additional two counts of attempted murder against Jethro Batt and David Tilson and four further counts of causing grievous bodily harm by administering poison. Despite all of the evidence against him, Graham pleaded not guilty, saying that his diary was based on fantasy and was just a draft for a novel that he was writing that had been completed in a single evening. He wrote to his cousin Sandra at the time, stating that he was not guilty and reporting that he stood a good chance of being acquitted. Graham felt that it could not be proved beyond reasonable doubt that he'd been responsible for poisoning his colleagues, and he was also unaware that there was proof of Bob being poisoned because he'd been cremated. When Graham had poisoned his stepmother Molly in 1962, it was true that poison could not be detected in someone's ashes after cremation. However, advances in forensic science meant that by 1971, the techniques were more sensitive and this is why thallium could be traced in Bob Eggle's ashes. When cross-examined by Mr John Leonard QC for the prosecution, Graham appeared to enjoy the attention that was directed towards him, and also the challenge of dismissing the prosecution's claims. Some witnesses at the time described him as seeming flamboyant and arrogant in the courtroom. Indeed, the book The St Albans Poisoner reveals details of the courtroom exchanges between Young and the prosecution, and again his intelligence and confidence shines through, in which he clearly impressed all as the only witness for the defence. To recount exactly all of these would take considerable time and it would make an unbelievable series of an episode really, so it's well worth investing in the book as it does make for fascinating, well-researched reading, a link to which will be with the show notes this week. The jury could not be told of Graham's history as a patient in Broadmoor or of his previous conviction of poisonings in case this prejudiced their views against him, but after a 10-day trial on July the 29th, 1972, and after only an hour of deliberation, 
the jury found Graham guilty of all of the charges against him and he was subsequently sentenced to life imprisonment for the counts that he was charged for. When the jury were eventually told of Graham's prior convictions following the verdict, there was outrage, and Susan Nowak, who was a journalist for the Watford Observer, later recalled that the blood drained from the faces of the members of the jury when they learned that Graham had only recently been released from a secure psychiatric hospital and thus had only had chance to commit the atrocities that he did because for the previous nine years he'd been incarcerated. Mr Peter Goodman, who was part of Graham's defence team, recalled him as being proud of being the first person in Britain to use thallium in a poisoning case, and said, For him, the whole thing was one big chemistry experiment, and I suppose the trial was an experiment in seeing if he could use his knowledge to argue his way out of it. Sir Arthur Irvine QC, who was a barrister for the defence, emphasised to the court that Graham had only been free to commit the crimes because of his premature release from Broadmoor, and that Young himself believed that prison would be more desirable and beneficial to him. Young had now got the notoriety that he'd craved for all of his young life. It's estimated that Graham poisoned over 70 people in total, and there was no rationale for his choice of victims. He did state that he wanted to be known as the world poisoner rather than the teacup poisoner, which he felt was a bit of a derogatory term, and whilst he threatened to commit suicide if he was found guilty by breaking his own neck on the rail of the dock, he didn't do so. He took the verdicts and the life sentence impassively, and was taken to first Wormwood Scrubs Prison, before being transported to Parkhurst Prison on the Isle of Wight in Hampshire to serve out his sentence. Graham spent the next 19 years of his life at Parkhurst, which at the time was a top security prison. During his time at Parkhurst he met Ian Brady and they formed a connection, a friendship of sorts, because they both shared an obsession about Adolf Hitler. If you could ever call Ian Brady a friend, I mean, that proper boggles the mind, that doesn't it? Brady even referenced Graham in his 2001 book called The Gates of Janus, Serial Killing and Its Analysis. Another Category A prisoner there at the time, an associate of the Cray twins called Roy Shaw, also appeared to be quite taken with Graham, describing him as being engaging in a book that he wrote about his criminal and bare-knuckle fighting career, Pretty Boy, in 2003. Graham Young was still in Parker's prison when he was found dead on the floor of his cell on the 1st of August 1990, just a week before his 43rd birthday. Whilst his death certificate records a heart attack as being the cause of his death, he had no history of heart difficulties and it's been speculated that he committed suicide, perhaps using his vast knowledge of poisons to manufacture and administer something ultimately fatal and traceless, or even that he was murdered by some of his fellow inmates. This, of course, has never been proven. Graham never showed any remorse for his actions, and he described to his sister Winifred in letters that he felt a terrible coldness inside me. Whilst he craved notoriety and ultimately got it, his name is perhaps not as well known as some of other British mass killers. However, he was no less indiscriminately evil, and he perhaps placed little value on human life than most. Questions were asked in Parliament following his trial as to why Young had been released as apparently able to rejoin society, only to less than a month later 
begin to undertake a much more destructive campaign of poisoning than before, and the government, police and probation services came in for a hard ride in the press, who were quite damning towards them about the lack of supervision Young was given following his release. When there's a case of this type, it is important to try and find some good that occurred afterwards, and in the case of Graham Young, the jury at his trial called for an urgent review of the law covering the sale of poisons after the trial, when the British press also supported this campaign. This happened fairly quickly, with the Poisons Act coming into force in 1972. Another effect of this case was that the then Home Secretary, Reginald Maudling, following the trial, ordered two formal inquiries into the way in which prisoners with mental health issues are supervised and treated. Young's case was discussed in the House of Commons in July 1972, and a joint Home Office DHSS committee was chaired by Lord Butler of Saffron Walden. The ensuing Butler report in 1975 resulted in more provision being made available for offenders with mental illnesses, including medium-secure units where individuals could be monitored much more closely when being considered for release. Additionally, it was reported that at the time of Graham's conviction, there were fewer than 10 forensic psychiatrists in the whole of Great Britain, and these specialists had to work between multiple roles in both prisons and hospitals. Thanks to the Butler report, the need for much more was recognised and helped to increase this, and more recent figures show that there are now more than 130 consultant forensic psychiatrists in Britain, with an additional 76 specialist registrars training in this field. The Young case was also the basis for a 1995 black comedy film called The Young Poisoner's Handbook, which told the story of Young's crimes whilst adding a smidgen of poetic licence to the tale. It's based on the very same book that the Shizuoka girl used as her own Bible, Anthony Holden's The St. Albans Poisoner, which as I've said throughout the episode is well worthy of a read as it remains the definitive account of the Young case in my opinion. The case has featured in many true crime texts but I think you're hard pushed to beat Holden's. So why did Young do what he did? These were not sexual crimes, there's no evidence to suggest that Young gained any kind of sexual thrill from what he was doing, and nor were they crimes of passion or profit. It became clear that psychopathy was ingrained in him from a young boy, and he ceased to see people as just that. Instead, they became mere guinea pigs to him, particularly family and close friends, who he selected because he could monitor the effects of his poisonings much more closely. Poison was a destructive weapon to Young that he could wield the ultimate control over. He could control the doses and exact agents that he gave to people, and he could thus control their symptoms and ultimately whether they lived or died. How chilling is that playing God like that, eh? Causing such prolonged suffering. How many more people would have suffered or even died had Young's ego not given himself away and he had to demonstrate his knowledge to authorities? and thus draw attention to himself. And think of the people he poisoned who for years afterwards had to live with the long-term health effects that Jung's actions had left them with, perhaps still do to this day, even in the twilight years. The Jung case is one that I've always been fascinated by, and personally, it's one I've always found to be extra chilling. Someone who butchers or strangles another is horror enough, but it's at least relatively instant and it's often accompanied by a rage or an extreme emotion. 
but to clinically and methodically over time facilitate someone's death with a means that causes so much suffering and not because of a personal thing but because you simply see them as nothing more than a guinea pig well that level of coldness that's horror indeed isn't it and he's well deserved to be a waxwork in the chamber of horrors if he still is one today I must applaud Julia's choice of case to cover for the episode this week, which I thank her very kindly for researching and writing, and I look forward to further pieces from her. I know she has suggested a couple of cases for this, the like of which I was very impressed with and I'm eager for her to do so. I would as ever love hearing your thoughts about the episode this week. I hope it's one that you found interesting and informative, and you know where you can get in touch to hear your views in either the Facebook group or through any of the show's social media links, I'm never too far away. That's about it from me for another week, but I shall be back next week with another tale that I hope you can join me then for. Until then, it's thanks once again to the author of this week's episode, Julia Crane, and from me, I've been, still am, and still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, Thanks very much for joining us today and goodbye for now.